You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season, whether I was out west during my elk hunt, South Dakota mule deer hunt, or my rut vacation in Iowa, I was on my phone using Onyx Maps every part of the day, whether I was looking at terrain features uh, on the topographic and, and satellite maps that they offer on their uh, uh, on their app, or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands, or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location. I used Onyx Maps every single day, and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map and uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before I had to wait till sun up and then and then you know find it that way but that problem does not exist anymore because of Onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that I think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So onyxmaps.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Hopefully everybody had a great weekend, dude. I went out and uh, the phone step counter said that we walked over 20,000 steps. Now, I don't know how many miles that is, but we put on uh, we put on a good chunk of miles this weekend looking for some sheds. We found four between my stepbrother and I and uh, got the opportunity to get outside and uh, just get some fresh air. Man, I've been wanting to go out there and pound some ground for a while now and uh, finally got the opportunity to do it. Um, shed hunting this year just seems a little off. I'm not seeing the late season sign that uh, I normally do. Uh, a lot of the fields in the area were combined and then turned over. 
so the food was not sitting on top thus making the deer look elsewhere for food but uh you know we didn't get the opportunity to find sheds but what i did do while i was out there was look for sign look for old sign look for tree stand locations look for access routes so i did a fair share of of scouting while doing shed hunting and uh, although i was really excited hoping we were going to find more sheds we did not but that's the name of the game right uh it's basically a needle in the haystack and uh as uh, as uh, we found out i walked by a shed two times uh just kind of you know getting into the zone and daydreaming and and uh not really thinking about shed hunting and uh, my stepbrother walks pretty much right behind me and finds a you know a decent antler right right after i I almost stepped on it and uh, so he gave me shit on that but uh we had we had a great time uh hopefully uh their their next time that we go out the there might be more bone on the ground i'm gonna give it two weeks then i'm gonna go and walk the property again uh my stepdad is showing that he's got a ton of deer still holding antlers on his property and then uh, i'm hearing the same thing from neighboring farms and other people in the same area that deer a lot of deer are still holding so hopefully when we go back in two weeks we find some more other than that had a great weekend now today we're going to be talking with matt die of um he is one half of the land and legacy now you guys hear these uh, the land and legacy podcast on the sportsman's nation all the time these guys are in the excellent class these guys are some of the best habitat uh speakers in my opinion these guys know a shit ton about habitat uh they talk a lot about uh, in, in detail about it so these guys are expert level all right and it's just a really good podcast about what you can do as far as habitat management on property that you do not own or you do not lease so basically on knock on door permission if you have access to a farm what could you do to improve habitat for deer or even other wildlife without being too invasive you know on property that you do not own or do not lease and uh it's uh i asked some tough questions and he gives some really good answers about that because me personally i don't own land so i can't manipulate the the habitat like a a guy who owns land or has access to leases to plant food plots i don't have I, i can't do all that stuff so i i asked the question if i could do those things on this farm because i've been hunting on a farm for a long time now i want to talk with a landowner to see if i can maybe plant a bigger food plot or maybe take up a little bit of their pasture or maybe uh, do some hinge cutting to maybe improve bedding areas or something right Uh, i want to talk to my landowner and basically see if she's up for it and if she does say yes what do i need to do at this point and matt uh, does a really good job explaining all of that stuff so uh, really interesting uh, episode with a lot of insight into it. So I hope you guys enjoy it and be sure to listen to the Land and Legacy podcast as well because if you're a habitat nut or just want to know more about habitat for all species and just for habitat in general, uh, the Land and Legacy guys, in my opinion, are probably the best habitat podcast that is out there, period. 
you know, and I'm, I'm pretty biased on that too, but you know, it is what it is. So we got to do a commercial now and that commercial is lone wolf tree stands. Uh, you guys hear me talk about lone wolf all the time, lone wolf portable tree stands and they're, they allow me, it's one of those pieces of equipment where it's like, Hey, could you have killed this deer without it? Yes, I probably could have, but lone wolf hunting products makes a tree stand that allows me to be mobile so i rely a lot on the ease of setting up and tearing down and not just the, the tree stand itself but the sticks that that come with it or you know that they offer as well so my my mobile setup is four sticks and one tree stand i'm a huge fan of the assault but i have the alpha as well so what you need to do is go check out lonewolfhuntingproducts.com and then check out their lineup right check out the sticks check out the uh, the stands and then when you do decide to buy enter the discount code nfc50 and what will happen there is you're going to receive a 50 dollars discount on all purchases over 199 dollars and 99 cents so basically uh basically a 25 percent discount it, it's uh it's a good uh God, I'm mumbling today, but it's a good, uh, it's a good D it's a, it's a good, God damn it. It is a good discount by God. So go buy a lone wolf tree stand 25% off. And, uh, um, you know, it's 50, if it's $50 off all orders over $200. So one of their uh, assaults is like 120 or excuse me, 225 or 250. Uh, you save 50 bucks on that, uh, that purchase and you're getting an American made product and one of the best tree stands on the market period. Uh, and if you want to be mobile, it's going to help you be mobile. So I'm going to do you all a favor and stop talking on this intro, and we're going to get right into this Habitat-themed podcast with Matt Dye of Land and Legacy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on the phone with me today, one half of the Land and Legacy crew, Matt Dye. Matt, what's up? Oh, not much, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Other than, uh, like we talked about <laughs> before the uh, the phone or, you know, before we started recording, we got the the flu in our house right now. So I'm not sick, but I'm feeling like I'm going to get sick. Well, I'm sure glad that this is a phone conversation rather than in person. <laughs> <laughs> I hate <being> <laughs> Yeah, I hear that. All right. I don't. I don't wish that on on uh, on you guys at all. But man, that's that's no fun to have to deal with, especially when you got kids. Oh in, yeah. Uh, in the equation. That's right. That's right. And um, today we're going to be talking about your specialty, which is habitat. And for for those of you guys who have never listened to the Land and Legacy uh, podcast, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk you up big time right now. Uh, you and Adam do a outstanding job of not only communicating habitat practices and the details of um, habitat management to the listener, but you do it in a way that is detailed, but at the same time, uh, understandable, if that makes sense, because there, you know, habitat can be one of those things where you can get lost really quickly. uh, And you guys do, in my opinion, do a really good job of you know, putting your content out in an easy to digest way so people don't get overwhelmed when they consume it. 
that's that's our goal. We we talk with a lot of people, um, researchers, scientists, biologists, um, and what we our goal is to take that information that is kind of tough to understand, and and regurgitate it and use science to help. I don't want to say prove points, but just share quality information as the things that are going to make the difference and how game species, whether it's deer, turkey, quail, so on, are going to re- respond to these things. And, and to what degree are they going to respond? So you have to have that hard science information to, to substantiate and back up what it is you're talking about. But then we also have to put it in into terms in a manner that makes sense for people so that they can then take that information and actually go make the difference there on a property. And that's what changes the landscape it's hard to take that science peer-reviewed articles and things and just make sense of it but we feel like that's kind of our our job is is understand the difficult scientific and then regurgitate it and make sure that we're helping landowners make those changes that they want and how whatever those changes may be on their property whatever the, the needs are we can create that through wise habitat management practices. Right, right, and that's a that's a really good uh, good good way to look at it. Now, on this episode, we're going to be talking about all that stuff, but we're going to do it in a way um, that is. Uh, the term is dumb it down. We're going to dumb it down a little bit um, because a lot of my listeners <laughs> may not necessarily own land. They may lease property. Uh, you know, a lot of them do own land, but I would say a majority of them have permission to hunt private ground or they hunt public. Um, but this podcast specifically is going to be for the guys who maybe not don't have the budget, maybe um, have permission and uh, are interested about habitat, but they don't know maybe how they should talk to us. Uh, specific landowner and then other than that uh this is going to be a straight bs shoot from the hip rapid fire type uh, uh type of episode so do you th- are you down for that do you think you can handle it i can handle it i'm i'm ready for it rapid fire stuff let's do it I, as if anyone does listen to to our podcast they kind of realize that sometimes we shoot from the hip uh hour-long sessions so that's that's right up my alley, man. I'm ready. Good deal. All right. So, and the, the other the other thing is I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, throwing my scenario out to you and asking what I should do in a, in a sure. uh, scenario like that. And the first one, the first scenario I want to talk to you is my specific scenario. I hunt private ground. I do not own it. I don't lease it. So, um, for me, I feel like... I don't necessarily have the ability or I don't want to impede on the landowners. You know, I don't, you know, them letting me hunt their property is good enough for me, but I feel like there's a side of me. If I asked to do any habitat work or plant food plots, it would be me overstepping my boundaries, if that makes sense. So I don't know if you you come across this at all, but if I was to approach my landowner and say, Hey, I would love to do some habitat work or plant some food plots. Is there a, a specific approach that you would recommend? Really, really good question. And I think that you're definitely not a Leo. Um, and, and here's the important thing when working and talking with landowners. 
uh, especially in an agricultural setting. Most likely that's what you're going to find yourself in, in in your typical region. Other people are going to find themselves in, in areas of uh, timber country or, or cattle ground. But I think you, you have to go down to the root of the, of the reason why those people are owning land. Maybe it's from a family or heritage thing, or maybe they're trying, that's their main source of income. And obviously we can't, we can't really impact or change that main source of income. But if you're in a situation where you have a lot of agricultural fields, um, there's a lot of things that can be done with them that aren't going to impede the production side of it, yet it's still going to give you as a hunter the benefit of, um, of having added food, let's say during non-traditional crop time. So during the fall and winter time, you can have a food out there and not impede the harvest of those crops. But you have to really understand it. And I think take a step back from a, a hunter standpoint and say, if I own the land and someone approached me about trying to do this, what would I want them to tell me? Why, what would I want them to communicate to me as to why they're doing it and then how they're going to do it? Rather than I guess, go to them with a detailed plan of, hey, this is what I see. Here's, if I, I, if I go and do this practice, here's how it's going to improve your property. Not necessarily I just want to go and completely change things, but I see that you're using the property for um, crop and income. If I go into your property and try and add some additional food during September or late August and overseed some um, fall food plot mixtures into your standing crop, I'm adding a cover crop to those acres, which is, yes, a food plot for me to hunt over. But at the same time, I'm improving soil quality. Um, I'm adding or, or increasing the amount of water infiltration in to the soil, which is then going to reduce some erosion depending on the size that you're doing. So I think we really have to, if we want to get somewhere with them, understand their angle and come at it from a very land steward type approach, knowing that both sides are getting benefit. But I think that's going to get you as a hunter or someone who leases the property, that's going to get you that success that you want to see um, and allow you to be able to kind of change and manipulate things okay so so basically come at them with all the information uh when you do say hey listen uh i'd like to plant an acre size food plot and for you it's about killing let's say deer or you know or uh, whatever the food plot is maybe turkey take advantage of it whatever your goal is to try to um, kill more animals off of it and their goal it, in, in you want to approach it to them with a how it's going to benefit their property in the long run, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Absolutely. All right. And, and sometimes it could be just as simple as, hey, you have too many deer on the landscape. Yeah. It's unhealthy. We need to reduce. Hey, yeah. That could be a simple thing. But make sure you, you have some evidence to prove that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I want to say, you know, for the, for the people out there who have food plots and are able to do habitat management work on their properties, is there, you know, I can go to the landowner and I can say these things, but 
where do you feel that there might be a uh, um, a hiccup in their plans or maybe why they don't want you to do that? And by knowing that, what they don't want you to do, it may help me rebuttal and say, hey, listen, um, actually, uh, this will help or actually, you know, it, uh, this will improve your timber stand or this will improve your, you know, your yield or, or whatever, whatever, uh, what, whatever you're trying to accomplish. I, I can sense there might be some hesitancy uh, from the landowners if there is any uh, of that, you know, if they have any hesitancy, what would that be? I mean, or how do you work around that or explain to them that, listen, this is actually good? Yeah, that's a really, really great question because change is what people are scared of. Um, so they maybe they've owned the property for a long time and they're, they're used to seeing it and they're used to operating it in one certain manner. And if you come in and propose a change or, or try and recommend to do something that's going to physically make it look different, it's kind of scary because sometimes these practices, people don't necessarily know what the end result is going to look like. Um, and it's hard for them to imagine that property looking, being different from what it is. And so if you can provide examples as to, okay, here's, here's the technique that I'm looking to implement here, but here's what the end result's going to look like and and physically show them pictures of what that's going to be and kind of reduce that fear, that hesitancy of the unknown fear of the unknown of what those practices could be. We've all heard horror stories of of practices that um, maybe if the logging crew comes in and and it looks like a a bomb went off and in reality, a lot of times, that added sunlight is exactly what that forest needed or it's exactly what um, the wildlife, uh, a key component that they did not have in the surrounding area. So it may look ugly, but wildlife-wise, that's what was really necessary. So we just have to educate people on what it is that's occurring and remove those fears from what it's going to look like and let them know that, okay, here's here's what I know is going to come back, let's say from – vegetation standpoint but this is a key component to let's say white-tailed deer maybe it's fawning cover you don't have enough fawning cover when you do this practice that's what you're going to have to come back right really it's just education dan it's just making sure you explain in full detail kind of start to finish what that result is going to be and what what's the intended purpose of it right yeah that makes a lot of sense all right so um I now I have all the um, education I need to explain to the landowner of what I'm trying to accomplish. And I know this is a broad question because there's so many different ecosystems and terrain types out there. But um, I go to the landowner. What do you what do you feel I should pitch to them? Should I pitch something like let me plant a food plot on a couple acres that you you may have set aside for nothing or um you know, can I sprinkle some winter wheat into a bean field after the harvest so it comes up? Or, you know, food plot type, food type uh, um, habitat work? Or what about something that may be a little bit more invasive like hinge cutting or edge feathering or something that's going to take a lot more work and they'll actually see uh, the change in the habitat? 
What was the first part of that question again there, Dan? The the food plot. Long story short, would would you rather me approach the landowner and say, hey, I'd like to do some food plot or uh, I'd like to do some, some like uh, cutting down trees or uh, edge feathering or hinge cutting? Sure. So the, the first way I think to get your foot in the door is definitely from a food plot situation. Um, everyone's familiar with that and they, they can – pretty much visualize what that's going to be. And if it's not impacting, I said, the production, the tillable acres, or maybe maybe you do have some, or that landowner has some areas set aside, they know what to expect. Um, and they can see that. I think getting your foot in the door with a practice like that is, is definitely step number one. Show them that you're proficient with managing the land and making these alterations and what you say is going to happen actually happens, and then come to them and say, the next thing that I'd like to do after the success of the food plot is let's incorporate some edge feathering to these areas. Maybe we're, we're missing this shrubby cover landscape transitional area in, in your neck of the woods, and I can create that by doing edge feathering. And so sure enough, then with the confidence from the food plot, they say, I'm going to trust you that you are that you know what you're talking about and, and then move into actual cutting down of trees and, and feathering that edge and increasing that habitat along the edges of fields or pastures or food plots, whatever it may be. But I would say start small and work your way into that. Okay. All right. So um... – Food plots, it's a little bit less invasive. Uh, is there a food plot? And I know I'm, this is kind of all over the place and it doesn't, you know, it kind of distracts here from the main topic a little bit. But is there a food plot that you would recommend, uh, you know, this is a general question again, because again, the, the soils mm-hmm. are so different from all over, you know, from the south to the north to the east to the west. But is there a specific food plot that you would recommend to someone who's going to be uh, planning a food plot for the first time on a piece of property that they do not own? So I would absolutely recommend perennial clover blends as your, your kind of top go-to choice. They're super easy to establish with that being a really small seed. You really don't want to go any deeper than a 16th of an inch into the soil profile. So that being said, you can broadcast the seed um, with great success. They last a long time um, with the proper care, and the care is simply can be done with a sprayer or a mower. Um, so you don't have to have super big equipment or anything like that to establish it or maintain it. Um, and clover, one, again, lasts a long time, but it provides a lot of benefit throughout many months of the year. So seven, eight months of the year for most of the United States, Clover is going to be rocking and rolling from a forage standpoint. Um, and so it's tough to beat a good clover base um, in, in, a, in a food plot situation, especially on lease ground. And you don't have to disturb the soil. Um, you can, let's just say it's an old pasture field or corner of a field, spray that vegetation out, terminate it, and then broadcast before rain. And you're going to have clover come back in there for sure. Okay. And, uh, I don't know if this is important or not, but I'm as a landowner, I would, I would think it, it might be important. Something like soybeans or uh, corn. If you go in there and you plant a, uh, 
a plot like that, you have to tear up the soil. You have to go in and plant it and fertilize it and do all these things. And, and then if you decide you don't want to do it the next year, then you have all this bare ground that doesn't, it just may not look, you know, it looks like a picked egg, you know, or a weed pile or whatever. Whereas a, uh, the, the clover may be, you know, if you don't want to do it, you don't, you don't do it. It just kind of grows up and, and it, it, it goes back to what it was. Definitely. Yep. Gotcha. And, and that clover base will be there for, for several years. Um, you know, which, which again is adding benefit down, down the road, even whether you're hunting that property or not still, um, it's going to definitely not have that same appearance as a fallow field. Although as a wildlife manager, you may say, Oh, look at that cover and those weeds in there. That's good for wildlife. But from the landowner perspective, got to put our, our ourselves in their shoes and they yeah they just may not like that appearance nearly as much so like you said dan clover is a really good start for food plot situations on on a lease piece okay all right so what about a a property that food plots is not an option and you talk to the landowner and say hey man i would really love to you know, maybe it's an acreage. Maybe it's just like a guy who lives out in the country. He doesn't hunt, but he owns 10 acres and it's all woods. Um, he, he just likes to go out and maybe walk around it every once in a while, but you're his buddy and he lets you come hunt on it. What would be a, a simple, uh, habitat practice that I could approach him with, uh, and where he would be like, mm, yeah, I think, uh, I think I'd be okay with that. That's not too terribly invasive. Sure. So if it's timber ground, there's probably the need for timber stand improvement. Um, so basically allowing sunlight in to get to the forest floor, it's hopefully going to spur on additional regeneration uh, of native species. Maybe that's blackberry or greenbriar or some goldenrod. Maybe if you get enough sunlight in, you can get some, some native grasses underneath of that. But in, in most situations, this is, again, why we use science to help prove and make these changes, because let's just say that that acreage is dominated in so white oak species or a mix of white oak and hickory. It's pretty common for a lot of people to experience, and then there's some other, other species in there. But we know that 70% of the acorns produced on, on great years is, comes from only 40% of the trees. So... What that means is not every tree is a really good producer. So if you go in and you remove some of the, the poor producers and thin out around the best standing trees, the crop trees, let's say, do a crop tree release. So you're physically going in and cutting a, with a chainsaw maybe some of the other hickories or the elms that are impacting the canopy of those good trees. You're actually, by cutting increasing the amount of acorns that are produced. Some of those trees may be oak trees, but you've realized that with that science, if I find those good producers, I cut and add sunlight around it, reducing competition, I've just increased the amount of hard mass that these 10 acres can produce. And then in and around that canopy, I've let the sunlight in and I've spurred on that blackberry component, that um, green bark greenbrier component in this area that's additional food and additional cover you've just made a great impact and you 
increase the health of those trees too, all in the same manner. So that right there is one great technique. It may come across as invasive, but again, knowing the science behind it, it's what the force really is asking for and calling for. Um, so we, we can use that to our benefit and take that to a landowner. And a lot of times when, when you have that, that hard evidence, they say, okay, I understand. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. Now you're talking with the landowner and you've, you've presented them with the ideas. You've presented them with the details and they say, you know, uh, you make a really good point. I, I think, I think we should do, um, I think we should do some of that, but you can only do one. You can either have a food plot or you can do some habitat work in the timber hinge cut or, or you know, open the canopy or, or whatever uh, you decide to do. But you can only do one F- from strictly a deer hunting uh, scenario. What would you recommend one or the other? Oh, man, you're I'm going to have to take a look at the surrounding area and I'm going to have to evaluate myself to say which is limiting more limiting quality cover or food resources and so i'm going to let that determine which one i'm going to choose most likely i'm choosing the chainsaw activity to increase my chances of success typically what we're finding is like zero people are doing work in their timber very small fraction and so there's a lot of work that can be done in those areas and i'm going to get woody regeneration we get herbaceous cover back in there and i know that that's going to last a lot longer and provide a lot of different things to various game species over the benefit of that food plot can you kill deer in food plots every year if you have them yeah absolutely i also know that the benefit of of getting sunlight to the forest floor and the cover that can be produced whether it's little mini clear cuts or crop tree releasing 10 acres, I, I know that the, that benefit is to be a lot longer lasting than that food plot that I'm going to put in. So I'm going to help that landowner out as he's helping me and allowing me to increase my chances of successful hunting. Gotcha. Okay. So now kind of changing topics, but kind of not. We have um, a group of people who – you know, they spend all year daydreaming about um, going out and hunting, and they have this—they have the property to hunt, whether they own it or they don't own it. They only get one week a year, maybe two weeks, an entire year. And and I'm t- talking about my scenario again, and that is, mm-hmm. you know, that November first through November fourteenth, I don't do any hunting before or after that. I strictly am a bow hunter during the rut for the most part. What habitat work, and I know this is another broad, big question that has multiple answers, what habitat work can I do, food plot or chainsaw work or whatever, on a piece of property that will help me in that date range? That is a fantastic question, and honestly, this one is super simple. We have to look at what a deer is doing during that time frame, and Every single year, yeah, there's some outliers in Mississippi and and, uh, Alabama, things like that, with with weird, uh, out-of-the-norm ruts. 
but majority of the air of the country is experiencing the whitetail rut during that time frame. So deer every single year do the exact same thing during that time frame. There's one thing on a buck's mind, and because of that situation, the does react in a certain way, and they're trying to find good quality cover where they're not getting pestered and bumped and pushed around as much it's it's let's say a little bit easier to to evade them and then we also have to take in the fact that there's probably a lot of other hunters out there too so we've got some hunting pressure but when i hear that scenario i think cover and i'm going to hunt close to cover on the downwind side of that um during that time frame bucks are cruising that area and so i want to put the odds in my favor i can go in with a chainsaw and create that type of cover I'm really not worried about food at all because there's, again, one thing on a buck's mind, and that is find the does, and they're going to be in those areas of dense cover. So I'm going to create them, and I'm going to put them in the certain areas that I can successfully hunt, get to, and access, and I'm probably going to be situating myself. Maybe I've got a prevailing wind of the west, northwest, so I'm going to want to find myself on um, the appropriate side to go hunt that. Um, and so I, I'm definitely, without a doubt, I'm creating the cover with the chainsaw. Okay. Does your answer change if we take the Midwest out of the equation and we talk about, and I know it's a Midwestern state, but it's not your typical, um, ag timber finger type hunting you know, scenario where if we, if I was talking about out West in Kansas or the Dakotas or even in the Southeast where it's just big pine stands. No, it does not. Okay. Um, the, Create the, cover is basically your answer. Yeah. Okay. The cover is going to look different in those regions, but the deer are still associated with cover, and that's going to be dense vegetation six foot and under. So in, in the Dakotas, it may be um, uh, heavy shrub thickets, and in Kansas, it could be more shrub-dominated wooded thick draws or it could be um a tall crp ground in the south it could be a young clear cut four years old that's where they're going to be at regardless of your region but just work with the species that you have to create that cover in whatever region that's what i'm hunting november 1st through the 15th okay and then uh we can fly through this if you want to, but let's say you're a gun hunter. It's a late season, snow's on the ground, it's cold, the rut is past, um, and you're only hunting this this uh, mid-December, early January time frame. Is it still cover, or does it switch to food? <clears throat> so similar to the, your, your last um, question of, okay, well, food is going to change in, in every region, that food and crop areas may be standing corn. It may be standing corn with cover crops. Some areas it may just be cover crops. In some areas, and, and definitely timber country, it's going to be woody brows when you don't have ag fields around you. So I'm definitely keen in at that time frame to the food aspect. And then that food aspect is, again, based on your region or general land use is definitely going to change. But um, if I have the ability for, um, let's say, higher carb um, intake, higher energy intake food, so corn, standing corn, standing beans, I'm definitely going to probably key into that 
if I have it available in my area. But if I don't and I'm in central Pennsylvania with big mountains and just woods everywhere, big woods, I'm going to be hunting close to overlooking clear cuts, which still would be cover, but that time frame it's food also. Gotcha. Okay. So small properties, um, is, is habitat something that is scale relative? And what I mean by that is if you have a five acre piece, you can do something on five acres. And if you have a Mm -hmm. 500 acre piece, you can do the same percentage just at a bigger scale and it, it all works out. Or do you have to approach the size of the property differently? a really really good question man and one that gets posed pretty often um and i've and i've had this scenario play out with with landowners and clients in the past and i don't care if you've got 40 acres or 80 acres if, if someone said to me would you would you want 40 or well managed or would you want 80 i'd take the 40 all day long if five acres if i have comparatively speaking another guy who's got 10 acres next to me and he doesn't do anything. And I've got five acres of really quality habitat. Well, the deer are going to choose to be where the quality habitat is because there's probably security there and there's food there and cover there versus the 10 acres. And what I'm looking for is the daylight deer activity and they're going to be associated. um, And and that's going to be, let's say more frequent in those areas of, good quality cover and forage. So an area that's got habitat manipulated. And so, um, yeah, I definitely think that it doesn't matter the size of your property at all. If you, if you change it, you manipulate it, and you put it in a condition that's more conducive to wildlife, they're going to 100% react to it Okay, without a doubt. So now... I'm thinking about strategy at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, I'm not, I don't hunt field edges a lot because uh, my experience is, is that um, by the time the deer get to the field edge, it's almost night. um, It's dark. You have to exit through a field. You're kicking them up. You're disrupting them, uh, you know, getting out of your tree stand. So what I've done is I've moved in to the timber and hunted, you know, like anywhere from 50 yards to a hundred yards inside the timber to hopefully catch them coming to whatever, you know, end of the day food source that they decide to go to. Is there a habitat practice that you can implement onto a farm, whether it's large or small, that actually helps get deer on their feet earlier in the day so you can see more daylight movement? Yeah. So there's been some cool research out of um, Mississippi State that um, has been just tracking um, collared bucks. And basically what they're finding out is that there's movement and in, in time frames that you wouldn't normally expect, I guess. Um, where that cover, I mean, excuse me, where that movement is, is in areas of cover. And when, and when they're choosing to move from, like, say, a designated bedding area or to a food source, they're picking the areas that have the most cover to move from point A to point B. So they're reducing the amount of time that they're, say, exposed. The deer doesn't want to be ex- exposed themselves completely um, during, let's say, daylight hours where they're most vulnerable. So they are, if they're doing that, they're going to do it in areas of cover. So 
you can create, uh, let's just say you have a known bedding area 200 yards off a, a crop field edge. You can go in and increase the amount of sunlight and let's say that, that corridor, maybe they're crossing through a saddle and you want to make it thicker and denser with cover so you're adding sunlight or cutting trees. Um, you don't necessarily probably have to plant if you're in the timber. You don't have to plant anything. Just open up the open up the canopy and let nature you know, kind of take over and run its course. But you create that cover you're going to more naturally feel comfortable moving from point A to point B during daylight hours. So I, I do want to, if I can see 200 yards through the timber, daylight activity is probably going to be relatively low. Now, if the entire woodlot is, is wide open like that, you're going to see some. But in, in, in general, that's really poor quality habitat right Right. so if we have pockets of good and then wide open expanses and then you get to your field edge well i want to go into those areas of wide open and improve that cover so i'm creating more preferred corridors that deer are going to move more freely um, during daylight hours okay all right now same question but flip it is there a habitat practice that allows the deer to slow down on the way back to the bedroom so that you might be able to hunt more mornings and keep them Mm. on their feet as the sun comes up absolutely so basically i'm going to say the exact same thing uh for the fact deer are browsers or natural browsers so if if you have a wide open uh timber lot that doesn't have any understory in it there's no food for them to feed. So if they're leaving a destination food source and then getting back to a bedding area and there's nothing in between to slow them down and let them to naturally browse and feed their way through, then they're just going to walk straight through it. And that's, again, decreasing the amount of time that they're on their feet in that transitional hours. So by having, again, that cover and that forage, by opening up the sunlight, I've got brambles, I've got woody brows, I've got the tender ends i've got buds and all these other things that deer are going to naturally forage on and then that slows them down as they're um getting back to bedding in the morning perfect perfect that, that same practice will do both let's say okay all right so it just i mean it just keeps deer on their feet for more hours in a day absolutely okay yeah so let's say you have two identical pieces of property uh, now, and um, I know that I, where I hunt, I compete with, I, I'm on an active farm, cattle, horses, livestock, agriculture. It's there to make money in the ag world. I have managed property on three sides of that farm that's specific management for deer hunting, right? And... It's hard to compete. Is there anything that I can do on a farm like that where um, it's, you know, I don't own the property. It's heavy ag focus. Um, Is there anything that I can do or talk to the landowner about to where I can start competing or keeping deer on that property throughout the year when I know my neighbors got, you know, 50 acres of standing corn in late season or, you know, beans during the early season or food plots galore and habitat and bedding. Is there anything small that I can do that has a big impact and will keep deer? When you say, when you say that it's highly managed, what it, 
the, the neighboring property, let me say that. Yeah. What is um, what is that to you? What what is that highly managed aspect mean? Is it is it just standing food, or what does the timber and stuff look like that as you're looking across the property line? Yeah. So it's exactly what anybody here dreams of. I mean, you want a uh, you want a piece of property that's going to hold a ton of deer. It's got a ton of food. It has bedding cover. It has uh, thermal cover. It has everything that you talk about in your podcast, right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's the tits, right? And then me, I have the wide open timber. I have the cattle pasture. I have the um, ag, you know, the ag acres. So there, it's there's no focus on deer on this property sure. deer live there yes as a residual but there's mm-hmm. no it's there's no focus on the deer does that make sense yeah okay so two things one of them is a joke but <laughs> i like jokes pray for pray for a tornado okay <laughs> and then uh um the other thing is utilize those ag fields so you know do the cover crop situation, go in and broadcast before those beans or corn are harvested and broadcast, you know, cereal grains, turnips, radishes, annual clovers um, into that field. And then once that, that crop is harvested, you've got a food plot there, start to try and pull and compete some with those acres. And it seems like, guys, does that really even work? And it's like, yes, it absolutely does. Um, if you're broadcasting, you know, 50, 60 days before your frost in your area and you've got the right species there, food plot variety, um, man, it, it absolutely does work. And then they come and remove the, remove the crops and you've got green forage underneath of that standing ready to be consumed. And um, that definitely does work and that will help pull deer or, or let's say um, – you might be sharing deer more so between the two properties if you have a food source that is also high quality. Um, if you can't, the landowner says, no, you can't cut timber, um, you can't, can't run a chainsaw, that's very difficult. Um, if they're utilizing pasture acres, and your area is probably smooth brome and fescue, if they're utilizing that for livestock, they probably don't want you to remove that or spray that out and let old field growth um, occur in those areas. So you're kind of handcuffed a little bit, but what you do have is those ag fields that what the practice is that you're hoping to convince them to do, it's not going to impede or, or hurt them and their production at, at, at all. So adding that food component will definitely, will definitely help. Gotcha. Um, but again, if you're handcuffed in the other ways, there's really not, not much else that you can do besides hunting extremely smart and, and allowing those acres to be really secure. Um, does, do, I guess, do the livestock have access to the timber or are they all fenced out? From that? So that's another practice. <laughs> yeah. The, that, there's a whole, so the, the property is split into two parts. It's um, agriculture. Once the ag is out, the cattle move in. Uh, just to the eggs and then we have the other part that has the horses in it and the horses have free reign to all of the timber right Mm, so i'm I'm sure you've been on those properties where you see it's like oh my god that is the biggest rub i've ever seen when it's actually the horses pulling the bark off the trees (laughs) that is that's what that's what i hunt okay 
Um, so another thing that, that I guess I'd probably go back to from early on in the podcast, talk about what are, what are some ways to help, help the landowner and um, introducing them to government cost share options to help manage their farms um, is another really good way to get some work done that doesn't cost them very much money at all. So, so what I'm talking about or referring to in this situation is there's programs, Dan, out there that you could, whether you're a landowner or an operator on that land or just make an introduction to that landowner say, we can go and fence out livestock from the woods and the fencing material and the cost of that can be cost shared through government programs. And so you can take the livestock, make the, you know, make that introduction of the program to the landowner, remove the livestock from the timber so they're not over browsing it, it's not just complete, you know, wide open understory, remove them, keep them in the fields because really there's a little bit of shade component that will help the livestock. But beyond that, there's, there's no forage value. There's no additional benefits there. So can improve the hunting and you're not going to break their bank and maybe maybe they wanted it to be fenced but just couldn't swing it financially and now you're helping them and giving them an option to be able to um, accomplish that and it helps you out in the same situation perfect all right uh, we're going to wind down here pretty soon but um, anything any ideas tips uh, t- tricks for habitat or food plot type work on a on a piece of property that you don't own you only have permission to hunt on maybe a, a very small uh, piece of um, property or I, t- I tell you this what about a practice that is dirt cheap but has the best impact on habitat Ooh, there's a good one um so one of the things that it's super, super easy to do um, that does yield some really high-quality benefits for a lot of different game species, and that can be done at this time of the year in, in much of the country, is dormant season disking. And it's one of those practices that doesn't get talked about a lot because what you're trying to do and, and lightly disturbing, when we're talking about dormant season disking, it's the top two inches of the soil profile gets, gets kind of turned over. Um, what you're doing is promoting annual weeds to grow. So everyone's seen like a cornfield that, that didn't get planted at lace fallow. What you're creating is a better version of that. So a lot of annual weeds come into those, um, that whether it's, uh, does that are lactating, they're eating all the forage, bucks that are growing antlers. That's the first stuff to green up. Um, they're foraging on all those species. You're like, oh, that looks like a waste. But what comes back, uh, especially when you improve it by lightly disturbing the, the soil, you're getting an incredible expression of what Mother Nature can provide. And so the weeds that come back are, are fantastic forage. And then it's producing cover. I'm seeing fawns um, being stashed away in fallow fields or disc fields. Um, you know, during June, July, you can't, you can't compete with that forage and then you can't compete with that cover during the growing season. And all you did was lightly disturb the soil and it's such an easy practice um, to accomplish and, and the results are really big and it's 
hitting a critical time frame for that's turkey poults, um, quail. You're producing tons of quail food and quail cover, as well as for fawns during the growing season. Um, and, and as bucks are growing antlers, tons of tons of high quality food. Okay. Now we've talked a lot about deer uh, and hunting deer. Turkey season's coming yep. up. Any Ooh. any habitat work or even food plots that may help because i one thing i've noticed on the farms that i hunt is a reduction over the last five uh, to seven years uh, on the turkey population i remember when i first started this hunting this one farm it it was lit up i mean it was it was like a primos video right one of those videos <laughs> where just gobble gobble gobble, gobble, gobble and they just talk all day long you know up until noon in the last five years specifically man i'm hearing like two gobbles three gobbles they're more huh. spread out there's a reduction of the population i feel is there any work habitat work that a guy can do to help the turkey population absolutely and you've been talking about turkeys we could probably go for another hour right but i'm i'm always get jazzed up about turkey season and and what we've been doing here recently um on our podcast is we've been interviewing the researchers and the, the people who have restocked turkeys throughout the um, throughout the country um, sat down with them at NWTF and, and there's definitely a trend of what you're seeing and probably a lot of people can allude to now there are some pockets of turkeys across the country that are just complete booming populations right now but other areas are are seeing that reduction and what a lot of it they're finding is the lack of brood rearing cover on the landscape so sounds really scientific and nerdy but when after a nest is hatched and you've got the chicks out there the the habitat that they need and the vegetation that they need to survive and get to past say 28 days 30 days that is really really lost on the landscape and that practice i just talked about dormant season disking where there's annual weeds that is what they need to be able to survive so the the poults when they're really young, about 70% of their diet is all insects, high, high protein because they're growing like weeds um, and they need insects. And so if you don't have habitat to attract insects, you have really, really poor um, or definitely a lower decreased chance of poult survival. And then you'll have more turkeys into the fall that will then create more turkeys the next year. And it's just a downward spiral, but nesting habitat really isn't, uh, a humongous deal because they nest in a lot of different areas, um, field edges, fields, whatever they can, whatever they can find. But it's that it's that next stage of life that's really limiting. So dormant season disking, um, some CRP that's been lightly disturbed right after a burn, that's really good. Um, if you're able to burn your timber, or open up the canopy on field edges, that transitional shrubby cover, that stuff is is ideal for improving turkey numbers if you don't have it definitely figure out a way to create it um encourage encourage landowners to to learn about that kind of stuff too because it, it does make a difference and landowners private landowners are obviously the largest landholders across the country and it's important that everyone knows what's happening what's going on and how to kind of rewrite that or change the course perfect perfect well i tell you what man uh, i really appreciate 
you guys or you coming on the uh, podcast, I always say you guys because it's like you and Adam are the same person. You guys like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Not the like, first time I've heard that. <laughs> so, um, and Matt, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to hop on. And um, if anybody wants to reach out to you maybe and uh, talk about what you guys do with Land and Legacy, your consulting business, um, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. We encourage everyone to to reach out with questions of stuff that you might have heard or want to be, you know, elaborate on. But you can do that through our Instagram um, or Facebook. And that's just Land and Legacy, or go to our website landlegacy.tv and um, go to the consultation tab. And there's a way that you can email in directly to us through that tab, and uh, we'll get your your questions or comments or inquiries, and definitely get back with you on that. Um, it's it's always joy, Dan, to talk with you and chat with you about stuff that you're seeing and ways that the landscape can be improved for, for wildlife, as well as, you know, just any other techniques, whether it is livestock or, or um, agricultural stuff. We just we love, love talking about it, so appreciate the opportunity. Matt Dye, my friend, good luck this turkey season. Oh, man, you too. Keep me posted. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout-out to Matt for coming on and uh, chit-chatting with us today. Huge shout-out to all of the partners of this podcast. The Average Conservationist Apparel, Prime Archery, Ozonic Scent Elimination, Wasp Broadheads, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, and last but not least, Vortex Optics. Uh, Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast because uh, they pay me to promote their product, and that keeps me from having to sit in a cubicle. So... Uh, keep, uh, you know, show them that this advertising is working and guess what happens? Uh, I get to keep doing this and putting great content out there for you guys. Huge shout out to each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to listen to these episodes, man. I really appreciate it. You have no idea. Um, someday, hopefully I can return the favor. But uh, until now, just be sure you are subscribed to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast or the Sportsman's Nation Whitetail feed. Those are the two places where you can find the Nine Finger Chronicles content. Uh, Be sure to follow us on the Sportsman's Nation Instagram and Facebook and the Nine Finger Chronicles on Instagram and Facebook. And please, it's 2020. Uh, I'm dedicating this year to giving back. So if you have extra time, even if you have some extra money let's uh let's give back to the resources that we love hunting fishing nature conservation all that stuff and uh, i think that's it so go out there and kick this week right in the balls